Welcome to PR360, where every week the brightest minds in public relations, communications, and media discuss the topics and trends you need to know about. PR360 was produced in partnership with Global Results Communications. Now here's your host, Todd Perry. Welcome back to PR360. My guest today is Andrew Staub, a journalist turned PR pro with 15 years in the communications industry. He currently serves as the communications manager for Rite Aid Healthy Futures, a nonprofit grant making organization affiliated with the Rite Aid retail pharmacy chain. Prior stops included nonprofits in the economic development and tourism sector as well as several newspapers across Pennsylvania and Delaware. So, uh, Andrew, is there anything I've missed? No, I think that covers it, uh, covers most of it very nicely. Thank you. So, it looks like, you know, you have a background in writing, in journalism, uh, wrote for some newspapers, and I was looking at your LinkedIn, and I saw a really funny post the other day. And personally, I'm a writer myself, so I totally get this. You said, quote, as a professional writer, I have to say this. Sometimes I really hate writing, everyone. Please explain why a professional writer can hate writing almost more than anyone else. Yeah, so I, I posted that while I was in the midst of, of writing a paper for graduate school, and it was following a week when I had a pretty substantial writing assignment at work. And I was just um, hitting a wall where I didn't like any sentence that I was putting down on paper, no matter how many times I rewrote it. You know, and I think writers and others in creative fields often hit those moments of frustration. Sometimes when they just think, you know, do I even like what I'm doing here? You know, I, yeah. I'm nowhere near <laughs> their caliber. But, you know, even legendary writers like Jack Kerouac, Virginia Woolf, Kurt Vonnegut all complained about the mm-hmm. writing process at some point in time. So, so yeah, I think, you know, my post was a bit melodramatic. I kind of intended it to be uh, a little bit tongue-in-cheek. But uh, I do think writing is one of those exercises where whether you do it for work, whether you do it for a hobby, whether you do it just for, like, pleasure in your free time, it's so personal that it can become mm-hmm. exhausting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you probably understand this, that you want every word, every sentence, every paragraph just to be perfect. And it's... Um, yeah. So tempting to agonize over every last detail because you feel like the words on the paper really become an extension of yourself. So it's uh, yeah. so there's rewriting, you know, there's editing, and then there's sometimes just like the moments where I stare at the screen and you know don't really know what to write at all. Um, yeah, you know, go ahead. I said I, I totally feel you on that. It's like, and and when you do write professionally, like my wife will give me a card like for somebody's birthday and go, oh, could you write something? And then I go, oh my, I, how could I ever write anything? I, I have no idea. And I, cause now there's an expectation cause you do it professionally. So it's even, mm-hmm. it's even harder. But I, I really felt this post because I was like, uh, it's the old, I think Einstein, or maybe, I don't know if it was correctly attributed to him and saying something like, you know, I trust whatever your problems with mathematics are, mine are much greater, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think kind of like the, the flip side of it is, though, is um, when you're just standing in line for like a coffee or doing the laundry or mowing the lawn, I often have those moments where all of a sudden, like the, the perfect way to phrase a thought pops right into my mm. brain. And then and then you can't wait to get back in front of the keyboard to get that out of your mind and on the paper. And, you know, so I think, you know, even though it's kind of joking and, and 
you know, being a little bit tongue in cheek about, you know, writing being, you know, not fun and hating it. There are times when it really is, you know, fun and enjoyable and totally worthwhile. And you get those reminders of like, yeah, that's, that's why I write. That's why I like this. Mm -hmm. I always, whenever I get hung up like that, I always think back, there's a Hemingway quote, I think from Movable Feast, where he says, just one true sentence. And so I always think that if I if I don't know where to go with something, I go, okay, what's the truth of this? What's the heart of this? Let me write one true sentence, and then something will follow. And that's know, one of the, I guess, mental hacks that I use. Uh, so, as, you know, kind of keeping with the idea of writing, how do you keep the creative juices flowing as a, someone in communications, as a writer? Yeah, so I think sometimes, just in my spare time, it's getting away from writing. Um, you know, and I try to do some other creative type things that keep my, you know, energy up, keep me inspired, but also can clear my mind. Um, mm -hmm. you know, I guess the, one of the biggest examples is I cook quite a bit and I try oh. to make something new every week, you know, and I love those experiences in the kitchen, you know, from finding the recipe to going out, getting the ingredients, bringing it all home and, and kind of getting ready, um, to make the meal. And I find like, that's, you know, still a creative process, um, mm -hmm. that isn't writing, but I find just that, that time in the kitchen helps me clear my mind, um, of everything else. And I, you know, not only do I, you know, get to make something that usually tastes pretty good, I can come out mm -hmm. of that refreshed, um, you know, some of the stressors kind of go away and I think my family appreciates it too. You know, I think mm -hmm. they, they kind of, they generally like my cooking, I hope anyway. <laughs> well, no one's going to complain when you say, hey, let me yeah. cook, right? I, yeah. you know, I, I think we share the same brain because I do the exact same thing. You know, I'm sitting, I'm writing all day or I'm producing this podcast, I'm writing interviews and then... You know, right around 5.30, I go into the kitchen, I put on a podcast, or I put on some music that I like, get the ingredients together, start whipping together, you know, uh, some nice Italian chicken or something. And then, and I cook, you know, have a glass of wine, and it just, I feel like one side, it's like finding balance. Like one side of my brain I used earlier in the day, and now I'm using the other side, and then I come out of it full and ready to chill for the rest of the evening. I, I completely get that. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great barrier, kind of a, a great separation point between work and then easing into your personal life, but, but still doing something that's creative and fun. Yeah. So, uh, also on LinkedIn, I really love creeping people's LinkedIn profiles before doing the interviews because you get a really good sense kind of who they are and how they feel about things, at least in their professional lives. And I saw an interesting post you made because it was something we had spoken about on a previous show. Or not, we I had spoken about it on a previous show and it was about paywalls and why paywalls are a bit of a problem for PR practitioners because you can get somebody, you know, you can get really good coverage in something, but if nobody can read it, then what does it matter? So you said that uh, paywalls don't work, and I wanted to get your thoughts behind that. It was a simple statement, but I was like, okay, there's got to be a lot behind that. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, as a, a former journalist, um, I, I do believe in paying for news, and I think there's value um, in funding news creators out there. Um, but my biggest gripe with paywalls is that there's, there's no longer enough behind them to really make them worthwhile. And, I, and I'm speaking, you know, kind of as the consumer and customer of 
news here. And I think that's, you know, sad and unfortunate that um, just the wave of cuts to traditional print media, especially, um, have really turned once vibrant newspapers into, you know, websites that just have a, a trickle of news updates here and there. Um, generally, they're not covering your local school board meetings, your local city council meetings, and that kind of thing. So, you know, there's the journalist in me really wants to support um, local journalists, um, national journalists. Um, but, you know, if if I'm not actually getting any news when I break through the paywall, it's really hard to um, to see the value in that. And that's that's the yeah. vicious cycle that is playing out, you know they've been cut so severely at, at these newspapers that they, they can't even produce a product anymore. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. And it's, it's interesting, like you said, from the PR vantage point, you know, if you, if you place a, a great earned media story, but no one's paying to, to see it, you know, um, it's the whole, you know, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's around to hear it, did, did it really fall kind of phenomenon? Yes. It it feels like a vicious kind of downward spiral that I hope is not happening for the news business, but I don't I don't see a way out of it unfortunately. But you know, uh, once once you get to that point, sometimes some technology comes breaks through and and changes everything. So you can never count any platform, you know, down for the count, you know. Yeah, yeah, and it, it is interesting. I did see an Axios story this week about news organizations that are changing some of their paywall models, going to to membership models or kind of more dynamic paywalls. And you know, one idea that I've always heard that I really like is the idea of just a la carte um, purchases of news articles. And I, I think I'd be in that camp if there was a a news article that I really wanted to read. I might pony up a dollar just to read that one article at that time, especially if it was about, you know, my hometown, my, my local government or the sports team I follow, you know, if you made it really easy for me to buy a single purchase, you know, kind of that impulse buy um, the one click purchase that Amazon makes so easy, you know, I I would see some potential in that. Maybe someone smarter than me has already studied that though and realized that doesn't work for, for media either. I would totally use that as well. If it was like, oh, 50 cents to listen to read this or $2 or something, I, I'm in. Um, that, that seems like a, a, a good value. And also, as the news publication, you'd be selling multiple stories to me throughout the year, you know? Yeah. So I think, I think that's a good way of looking at it. So let's talk a little bit about Rite Aid Healthy Futures. So... Uh, you recently headed up a rebrand for Rite, well, Rite Aid Healthy Futures. Uh, what needed to change about the brand? What did you implement? And then also, could you give us a little overview of what uh, what the campaign is? Yeah, so um, so Rite Aid Healthy Futures is a, is a public nonprofit, a 501c3, um, that was started about 20 years ago by Rite Aid. And back then, it was, it was simply called the Rite Aid Foundation. Um, and it was a charity that, that was focused on children's health and wellness. Um, and I joined the charity as the Rite Aid Foundation about four, a little over four and a half years ago, I think. And um, it was right before 2020. Um, and when 2020 hit with the impacts of the COVID-19 mm. pandemic, the racial reckoning that was playing out in communities all across the country, um, we began to shift our, our grant-making model a little bit. Um, we still focused on children's health and wellness, but we started to overlay that with an equity lens. Um, mm. And we wanted to show up for, for kids and families at the local level. Um, 
And I think it didn't take long for us really to realize that the, that the name, the Rite Aid Foundation, um, didn't really speak to the work we wanted to accomplish. And in fact, it was probably just the, the standard name you'd expect from a, a philanthropic funder. So, so we gave it some thought yeah. and we thought, we want to be more than just a funder. We want to, you know, so I, we think our name and our identity should, should speak to that. It should be a little bit more descriptive, something a little bit more inspiring. So, so we really wanted this, this new identity to speak to how we would drive community impact around health, wellness, race, and equity in a collaborative way. And we wanted something that was a little bit more aspirational too. You know, we mm. wanted to become a leading charity that demonstrated a caring commitment to our neighbors and neighborhoods. So, so that really yeah. kind of like inspired us, told us, Hey, maybe we just need a new identity here that we've, we've outgrown the Rite Aid Foundation identity. So, um, we set out in a, in a pretty deliberate fashion to rebrand and we worked with a wonderful agency Periscope out of Minneapolis and uh, they helped guide us through the research phase, the creative phase that eventually yielded this, this new identity of Rite Aid Healthy Futures. Um, and we were really, you know, excited about it because the name Healthy Futures, you know, speaks directly to the outcomes that we want to see in the communities and the neighborhoods that we serve. Um, we do want every kid, every family to ultimately enjoy healthy future, whatever, whatever that might look like for them. Um, you know, and through that, we, we of course got the shiny new logo. Um, it has mm -hmm. a great feature, you know, which we call the human spark, um, which is really mm -hmm. at the center of all we do. And, and within that, that spark that you see in the logo, there's overlapping elements that represent our grant partners, our neighborhoods and the charity itself kind of showing how all the pieces can come together to lead to this ultimate mm -hmm. outcome of healthy futures you know, we got the new tagline, uplifting our neighborhoods together. That has really become no, one of our great. guiding mantras. And um, we launched that brand almost um, two years to the date now. Um, and with that, it was, it was, we never had um, a true standalone website. We never had our own social media channels, our own email marketing programs. And, and we launched all of that along with the brand, in addition to some really exciting grant programs um, that are really making a difference in some major cities across um, the United States, cities that, that Rite Aid calls home. So it was kind of an mm. exciting twofer. We um, announced the new brand and some really exciting new grant initiatives. Um, you know, and we've had this identity for two years now. And I think we've, we've realized, you know, there's, there's so much more to do when it comes to, to bringing a new brand to life. We've, we've kind mm -hmm. of established it. Um, but now we really need to use it to connect more deeply with Rite Aid customers, Rite Aid associates, major donors. And we need to still do a lot of work to bring people into this new organization and, yeah. and show them that they can play an important role in creating healthy futures for their communities. So that's, I think that's the exciting next uh, phase of our rebranding. And it's what I'm really looking forward mm. to. And, you know, you could imagine I can talk for a while about that. So I'll oh, just... Yeah. Uh, that's I'll great. stop right there. But that's kind of the, the nuts and bolts of Rite Aid Healthy Futures uh, launch. Cool. So can you can you speak to one of the initiatives that you guys have recently been involved with? Sure. So when we, we rebranded, we launched what we called the Strengthening Cities Initiative. And it was a, a $10 million commitment over two years um, in six cities, um, Baltimore, Buffalo, Cleveland, uh, Detroit, Fresno, and Philadelphia. And the, the $10 million went to 
um, it was split across about 28 different organizations, all working um, to fight food insecurity and hunger on the local level in very mm. targeted neighborhoods. Um, our, our grants and program team really did an excellent job identifying organizations that were working on the grassroots level, um, food banks that were working on the regional level. And, you know, we've just seen the first um, two-year phase of that program um, kind of wrap up here. And we're, re we're even right now working on uh, a report about some of the exciting innovations that we've seen through that program. There's just some amazing organizations that we've met that are doing incredible work um, in the food sovereignty space. Um, so we're really excited mm. to kind of to wrap up and, and share soon um, some of the early findings of that that Strengthening Cities initiative and think that there's really some some good work that's being done on the ground that could be scaled elsewhere. So, you know, great things are happening in those six cities and, you know, we'll soon be sharing more about that. Wow, that's fantastic. On a personal level, it has to feel great that you go into work every day and the work that you do winds up uh, to directly feed people who need it. That's what's more fulfilling than that. Yeah, it, it's incredibly fulfilling. And, you know, you we have to give the credit to, you know, our grant partners. You know, they're the ones on the ground really doing doing the work. And, you know, just, just last week or two weeks ago, I had the chance to, to go visit Plantation Park Heights Urban Farm in Baltimore. And they're doing some really amazing things, really, you know, creating uh, – a community within their, their neighborhood. They, they're filling vacant lots with pear trees, apple trees, growing everything from kale to hot peppers, you know, mm. and lots that are, are vacant. And it's just really incredible to see. And, you know, I love getting out and about and seeing, you know, the projects. And I know mm. the rest of our team, you know, our executive director, Matt Camera, loves to get out and about and, you know, see what's happening. Just really cool stuff happening there. Now, on a personal note, uh, your story is very inspiring because you were recently diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and but even even though you haven't let that set you back, I feel like you've accelerated your life. You completed a master's program in strategic communications, earned an accreditation uh, <clears throat> accreditation in public relations from the Public Relations Society of America, and you're currently pursuing a doctoral degree in leadership organizations. That's pretty incredible, being that you had a bit of a health setback and you haven't let that stop you. Uh, did the diagnosis give you a renewed passion to pursue your goals, or were you just always that way? So um, it's it's funny. You know, I can't say that four years ago when I got the diagnosis, I had one of those moments where, you know, I kind of stood up and said, I'm going to refuse to let a disease define me and I'm going to do even more. Um, as strange as it was, I think a lot of this was about the pursuit of something. Um, you know, mm -hmm. it took a long time to get that MS diagnosis. It's, it's a really weird disease. It took almost a, a year of going to see multiple specialists, um, oh. seeing multiple neurologists, getting multiple MRIs and, and all kinds of tests to kind mm. of figure out what was going on. My hands were totally numb. I couldn't bend my neck down without feeling a shock go through my left arm. And, you know, I was just incredibly tired oh. all the time. So MS, like I said, it's, it's just a weird disease of the central nervous system. So for, you know, nearly a year, we couldn't figure out what was, what was wrong with me. Um, you know, and I was really kind of on a mission. Like, I, I want to get this diagnosis. I want to figure out what what I'm facing here because once I kind of know the the villain, I can combat it. So it, it was funny. Yeah. I got my diagnosis 
late 2019. And from there, I was just like, you know what? I'm, you know, I don't have that diagnosis to pursue anymore, you know, but I still kind of had this energy. Um, so I decided to, to go to grad school and that's when I got my master's. And, you know, after, as I was doing that, I was like, this is pretty fun. So I decided to go get my accreditation yeah. in public relations at the same time. And then when I finished my master's, like I took a little bit of a break, but then I was like, you know, you know, what's the next thing? You know, I got to pursue something else here. Yeah. Um, maybe I have a little bit of like obsessive compulsive disorder with like trying to pursue, pursue things, but you know, I decided to go for the, the terminal degree. Um, I'm having a lot of fun doing that uh, I'm a year, yeah. a year into the three year program, just starting my dissertation. But now I'm kind of at the point where, you know, I think when I finish this, I'm going to be done with, with pursuing a lot of things. <laughs> I'm just, you know, kind of looking forward to having nights and weekends back. But, um, but yeah, it, it's funny, yeah. you know, the MS is kind of faded into the, the background. It's always there with me, you know, um, but, you know, I've learned to, to adapt with it. It can be really frustrating at times. You know, as a writer, when your hands are numb and you, you struggle to type, yeah. that's really frustrating. You talk about, you know, why writing might not be fun. Well, if it, if it hurts to do it, if it's hard to do yeah. it, that makes it less fun. But, you know, I found over time, like, you know, oh, yeah. my fingers have adapted, you know, so I can still find the keyboard. But, but yeah, it's a, you know, it's been kind of a, an, an interesting journey, you know, um, getting the diagnosis, but then, you know, just trying to, to do so much more, go after so much more. So, so maybe in a roundabout way, it did, you know, kind of provide that inspiration. It's interesting. It's like you, you're kind of, I don't know, I'm not going to say activity level, but you're, you got kicked into another gear by trying to figure out, you know, as you were saying to uh, figure out who the villain is and you kind of kept on that heightened level and applied it to other things. I, as I kind of think about when similar story, obviously not as inspiring, but like when I had a kid, like suddenly, you know, it was this heightened experience where, you know, you had, I had a lot less free time, but, the time I did have became much more valuable to me. So I ended up become getting a lot more done after having a kid than I did previously when I had all the time in the world. It's a weird thing. You start really appreciating your time and allocating it. You know, you say, okay, I've got two hours. What can I get done that I need to do or that I really want to do? Or, you know, what's my passion? You know, it's a way of kind of refining things, I guess. But yeah, yeah. I really think that's incredible. And I, I, hope that you can get to the point where you will enjoy that weekend and go, I'm not learning anything this week. Yeah. Yeah. My, my head sometimes feels like way too full. There's nothing else to, to stuff in there. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, uh, Andrew, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and it's always great talking to people who are doing, you know, helping great things happen in the world. How can people follow up with you and uh, learn your story and uh, what's the call to action here? Yeah, I think, you know, always, uh, you know, eager to connect with people on LinkedIn. You know, you can find me there. Um, just, at, you know, my, my LinkedIn address is just my last name, Andrew Staub. Um, you know, but really, you know, I would encourage people to go check out Right Aid Healthy Futures, you know, rightaidhealthyfutures.org. Mm -hmm. um, take some time to, to learn about the the incredible work that our partners are doing in, in Right Aid communities. And, you know, we'd love to have you, um, you know, 
go to Rite Aid, sign up for the Roundup program and, and support Rite Aid Healthy Futures, you know, that way. Um, it's just a small way to, to give back to the community. But, you know, happy to connect with anyone. I'm always happy to talk about Healthy Futures, happy to talk about, you know, writing, happy to talk about MS, you know. But LinkedIn's a great place to connect with me. All right. Thank you so much, Andrew, for coming on PR 360 and uh, hope to speak with you sometime in the future. All right. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed this. PR360 was produced by Todd Perry in partnership with Global Results Communications. Be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a review wherever you get podcasts. Follow GRC on all socials at Global Results. Follow Todd on Twitter at Todd A. Perry. That's Todd with one D. Talk to you next week.